Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Nakrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Borussia Dortmund is award-winning author and journalist Uli Hesse. Uli, how are you? I'm fine, Sachin. Hello. Thanks for having me. No Thanks problem. for listening to my incoherent ramblings. Oh, absolutely not. Well, actually, you know, I've just bought my introduction because I was going to say Guten Morgen, Uli. And actually, I realise that's probably wrong as well, because wherever you are, it's the afternoon, isn't it? So uh, it's all year almost. It's it's quite good. It's, um, you know, I used to live in the the very north of Germany for a while, where they have a greeting, which is, which would translate as as morning. You know, they say morning. Yeah. They say that all all the time. You know, it's it's throughout the day. (laughs) I really just, yeah. It's Whatever the time of day. Where are you exactly? Are you in Germany at the moment? I can see you're sitting I'm in Berlin. Your, you're in Berlin. Yeah. So I can see you're, I can see you're sitting in your very nice kitchen. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so you're in Berlin. Excellent. Very nice. How, how's yeah. Berlin today? Um, oh, it's nice. It's nice. It's sunny. Um, um, uh, it's a big weekend coming up for the football in the city. You know, I, I work for El Freunde magazine here in Berlin, which is why I am in Berlin, which yeah. is really the main reason I, I'm. We're going to talk about my club. I moved away from Dortmund about yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah, well, um, yeah, we are going to talk a lot, of, a lot about Borussia Dortmund. And actually, yeah, it's interesting you're in Berlin because that was actually the first thing I was going to come on to you. So as I said, we're going to have a, a long and I think what will be a really interesting chat about Dortmund, a club that's had incredible history and, and you've, you've, you've experienced it as a fan and a journalist. So there's going to be a lot to say. But I did actually, yeah, it's, it's interesting you're in Berlin because that was the first thing I want to touch on. Um, so we should say recording this on Thursday, the 12th of May, a couple of days before the last round of fixtures in the 2021-2022 Bundesliga season. Dortmund hosts mm-hmm. Hertha Berlin. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. So Berlin are travelling to Dortmund. Yeah. Um, uh, for the I said, final game of the season, Dortmund are going to finish second. And Bayern Munich, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was now, won the title for a 10th time in a row. Uh, an extraordinary achievement, but also a slightly depressing one and one that's been actually analysed in England uh, qu- quite a lot as well. Um, yeah, how, how has it been viewed? How has that achievement been viewed in Germany, discussed, analysed? Is it one that's been celebrated or is that a sense that 10 is, 10 is a little bit too much and perhaps a little bit worrying for German football? Well, I mean, seven would have been too much or six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, five. how many is too many? I guess that's the point, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's absolutely, of course. I mean, it's um, people are quite, well, people are trying to come up with ways how to, you know, what to do about it. Lots of ideas are being bandied about, even, you know, even the playoff system. Um, and we may talk about this later on when we talk about the actual club. My club is, is one of the things which is a bit worrying for us. One of the things that's being discussed is to do away with the 50 plus one rule, um, which, which is a complicated thing. Let's not get into this too far, but it basically it means, you know, our clubs are fan owned. Yeah. There are people who think that um, there are people who think that Bayern Munich are the biggest fans of the 50 plus one rule because sort of it cements their position at, at, uh, at the top of the heap. Well, I was, yeah, I was going to ask about this. So I should just say, as I said, this is something that's been discussed, as I said, in England as well. My colleague at The Guardian, Jonathan Lou, wrote, wrote an article just on the eve of, of, of Bayern winning their 10th title a couple of weeks ago. And and uh, he, he made quite an interesting point in his article, Vice. I mean, Jürgen Klopp actually said in an interview with Bild, which is that one of the issues in Germany is that the teams chasing Bayern take too many points off each other. Uh, so essentially the problem in a way is that the battle for second is so competitive. It makes it especially straightforward 
for Bayern to win the title. And indeed, if you look at their own points per game total, it's actually not that much more than winners in other leagues. So Bayern, if they win at the weekend, uh, I think they're playing Wolfsburg on Sunday, they'll achieve 79 points from 34 games, which is not a huge amount compared to other title wins in other countries. But the issue is, if you look then below, there's 14 points separating Dortmund in second from Cologne in seventh. And if you take that gap in the Premier League, it's 28 points. So it shows you that the sort of the battle for second in Germany is, is incredibly competitive. And one of the th- ar- arguments that Jonathan threw forward, and that's what I was going to ask you about, is the 50 plus one rule. And just to quickly sort of, for people who don't know what it is. So in Germany, clubs uh, who play in the Bundesliga, uh, so I should say clubs will not be allowed to play in the Bundesliga if commercial investors have more than 49% stake. In essence, this means that private investment investors cannot take over clubs and push through measures that prioritise profit over the wishes of supporters. It, the rule is sort of there to protect reckless owners and safeguard the democratic value of German clubs. But is, yeah, is the argument that that needs to go to allow, to allow some clubs to kind of have the sort of investment that will allow them to take on, to take on Bayern Munich? I mean, what is, what's your take on that? Um, well, that was a long question. <laughs> it was a lot of information. Sorry, I had to try and quickly pack in there, yeah. There's, I mean, perhaps we would, let me put it this way. Um, there's two things I would like to say about the general situation coming from a Dortmund fan, you know, because uh, I, I know an awful lot of people who are committed football fans and they don't really look at the quality of the league or, you know, or they don't judge that by whether there is a title race or not. If you know what I mean, for instance, yeah. we've got, I've got many friends who support Freiburg and for them, this is a fantastic season. You know, they couldn't care less who wins the league, um, but they're, they're in the cup final. Um, they have a chance at getting into the Champions League. Same as, I mean, we were in Berlin. I'm, I'm sorry, not we. I'm in Berlin right now. I mean, these have been fantastic years for the Union Berlin. You know, their, their fans are over the moon and they couldn't care less whether Bayern win the league or Dortmund or Leipzig. But, you know, they, they look at their own club and they think it's, it, it's fantastic. They love it. So that's one thing. But of course, it's different for me as a Dortmund fan because, I mean, I, it, it will sound strange to you. I just very recently, I talked to the man who was coaching Dortmund when we won the 1989 German Cup. And I told him that, and it's a true story, that we left Dortmund. We traveled all the way to what was then West Berlin. You know, it, it was a long journey because you had to cross the border into, foreign, into what was effectively a foreign country, you know, East Germany. Uh, we then had to park the car. We walked all the way to the ground. We got into the ground. And it was only when I was in the ground and looked around that I suddenly realized well, we could actually win this game. You know, I mean, there were people around me who thought that we could win the cup. And that, cro- that idea had never crossed my mind uh, because I grew up with Dortmund being, you know, a club, well, a mid-table club in a good season, fighting relegation in a bad season. Mm. Um, so, so for me, it's sometimes difficult to get into the mindset of, of, of a modern Dortmund fan, yeah. because for anybody who grew up in, in the nineties, uh, this is a really big club that should be challenging for titles. Mm. So it's different for a Dortmund club because for us, indeed it's, you know, we're, frankly, we're sick of finishing second, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, you know, we would really love to have a, have a closer race. But it's also, it's partly our fault, you know. It was just a couple of seasons ago under Lucien Favre when we would have won the league if we hadn't lost um, the derby against Schalke under very strange circumstances. 
you know, we could easily have won the league that season. Thirdly, we would not be having this discussion, I think, if one transfer had not been made. You know, there's all this talk about, you know, um, how efficient Bayern are and how well, you know, how, how good they are in the transfer market and how Dortmund sometimes drops silly points and things like that. But seriously, if Robert Lewandowski had not left Dortmund and signed for Bayern Munich, we wouldn't be having this discussion, you know. Um, you know? Um, yeah. So it's really just one of those things. Now, having said all this, it is really an unfortunate situation at the top of the Bundesliga table. And most people think it's, it's basically down to money, which it is in a way. It's not just, you know, yes, Dortmund could have won the league a couple of times in the, in, in the previous 10 years, but there is a huge gap between Dortmund and Bayern in terms of finances, just as much as there's a gap between, you know, Dortmund and other clubs in the Bundesliga. And one of the, one of the, um, the solutions to this problem, some people think, is bringing in investors, allowing investors, well, to, to, to call a spade a spade, is, is to allow businessmen to own a club, to buy mm, a club and yeah. pump money into it. Personally, I'm very much against that. And most committed German fans, most, you know, by which I mean, you know, match-going fans, people who really support their club, uh, they are very much against this. Uh, you, you only have to look at, at the very harsh reactions RB Leipzig are getting across the league because they've found a way of getting around the rule. They've not, they've not broken the letter of the rule, but they've broken the spirit. They found a way around it. And um, most really committed fans just don't like the club. So um, we would, most of us would really love to, to keep the 50 plus one rule and find another way of having the league become a bit more competitive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons I want to do, wanted to do a podcast on Dortmund is, in a way, to do a podcast on German football because from afar, uh, you know, I've watched some football in Germany, but I'm, I'm by no means an expert on it. But from afar, I think the sort of the values and fan culture in Germany is absolutely my sort of aspiration for how it should be in England. And that's why, you know, partly why I wanted to do this podcast to kind of celebrate that and explore it a little bit more. I absolutely think Germany should maintain the 50 plus one rule. In fact, I think it should be introduced in England. It should have been introduced immediately after the, the Super League debacle last year yeah. when it was that real push for more kind of fan fan ownership in football and fans have a greater say because, you know, yeah. what, what, what was happening at that time. And, you know, as I said, we're recording this on Thursday, uh, the 12th of May, the, uh, less than 24 hours after Manchester City beat Wolverhampton Wanderers 5-1 to essentially wrap up their fourth Premier League title in five seasons. And that is, you know, whatever Manchester City fans say, that has essentially come about because, uh, what was it now, 14 years ago, they were taken over by the state of Abu Dhabi, who have pumped, you know, literally billions of money into their club. And we're seeing Newcastle as well. This this season have been purchased by the state of Saudi Arabia, and no doubt they will soon become a force in English football as well. And I, just, I for me, it's just it's poisoned English football. I mean, I'm, I might say that as a bitter Liverpool fan, but I think it absolutely does. And I think the values of German football are should be transported here. And okay, maybe in Germany it's not sort of translating very well with Bayern's dominance, but I still think, as you say, fundamentally the values are are very strong. And obviously, the the, the best, the most clearest uh, illustration of that is the reaction to Leipzig, which I think is very. It's very interesting. I mean, just broadly, and it's probably we haven't got time to get into this fully. How would you describe and define German fan culture? As I said, from this from this side in the UK, I see it as being very democratic, and on a sort of almost match to match basis, it's it's as a fans having a say in their clubs, but just things like cheaper tickets, 
clubs being more sort of in tune with what their fans want in regards, for instance, kickoff times and just on quite a sort of maybe on a superficial level, being able to drink in the stands as well, which you're not even allowed to, you know, you can't even have alcohol while watching football in this country. I mean, it just does seem a lot better to put it sort of simply to be a fan in Germany than it is to be a fan in England. Uh, well, a couple of years ago, I took two friends of mine, uh, Aston Villa supporters from near Birmingham. Yeah. Um, I took them to a game in Dortmund for a 4 for 2 article. So I got them tickets for the South End, for the, for the, for the Terrace. The Yellow Wall. Um, yeah, 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 the Yellow Wall. Yeah. The yellow wall. Which we'll talk about later, yeah. And they were totally blown away, of course. I mean, and, and they told me, and I've, I've heard that from a lot of English fans, that it was sort of like football used to be in their youth. Mm. You know, both said it just reminded them of, you know, growing up on the Halty End in, at, at Villa Park. Because of all the things you said, one of them later told me, uh, you know, when they scored the second goal, I was showered in beer. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, of course, is a hazard, of course, if you can drink on the terraces. Uh, it's one of the things you got to live with. Um, yeah. You shouldn't bring expensive jacket to the terrace. Fans from England often ask me how we, how we manage to bring back standing you know how do we handle safe standing and i always tell them well number one it never went away and number two we don't call it safe standing we call it standing (laughs) just so um if if the the lower part of the south stand in dortmund i mean it's it's this huge terrace because they added the second tier um in in the um in the 90s but the lower part is exactly the way it used to be when i went there as a kid in 1977 I, i i think even the crush barriers are the same I may be wrong about this, you know, maybe they changed them, right? But they still look the same the way they looked in, in seven when I went to my first game. So the lower part of the of, of this huge stand is, has not changed, you know. They, they bring in seats for international games because they have to for European games, I mean. And when, you know, that was before the all-seater rule came in or before yeah. UEFA tried to uh, enforce the, um, the all-seater rule. And the second tier was added after the all-seater rule. So when it was built, the club knew that they would have to bring in seats for European games. So they have these, um, how do you call these? Um, um, these, um, these, these seats, these chairs, which could fold out. Yeah, so like retractable um, seats. That yeah, can, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that can be folded um, away when needed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, this, so that's the upper part of the South Stand. But the lower yeah. part is exactly... So yeah. whenever I go to a game, I feel pretty much the way I felt as, as a kid. You know, I would walk up the same stairs, have the same first glimpse, glimpse of the green, of the, of the pitch, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so Dortmund is passionate that we got because it's never really changed. Most clubs, you know, most clubs rebuilt their grounds in the 1990s and went more or less, well, not all seater, but they, they tried to have um, terraced areas. But to have this huge, this enormous yeah. stand, you know, that, that's really... You only have that at Dortmund, really. Yeah, well, I was going to come to later, but we're sort of talking about now, so let, let's do it now. So Dortmund Stadium, uh, the Westfalen Stadion, which is now known or has been known for a little while as the Signal in, in Duna Park. Signal in Duna Park. Um, after some, I after, wouldn't know about that. I, I always call it the Westfalen Stadion. Yeah, well, even I do, and I've never been there. But yeah, it is technically named because of, spon- of sponsorship type as a Signal in Duna Park. So, I mean, yeah, eighty-one thousand plus capacity. Um, as I said, I've never, sadly, I've never been there, but it looks absolutely, it looks like an absolutely incredible place to watch football. As I said, eighty-one thousand seat capacity. It looks like it's got that real tightness intensity of a traditional stadium, but also 
modern as well. And, and you've touched on it as well. The South Bank, the largest terrace for standing spectators in European football. It holds 24,454,000 uh, 24, people, I should say. Um, I don't know if he's known. Well, I think it is because we're going to come on to this now. Known, otherwise known as the Yellow Wall. And you wrote a, a brilliant book about it called Building the Yellow Wall, the incredible rise and cult appeal of Borussia Dortmund. So, yeah, do you just, I mean, you've sort of touched on a lot of it there. Do you want to talk about going to the stadium, how it's changed, uh, why that stand is so important to the experience of, of watching uh, Dortmund? And also, I'm intrigued, the people, I mean, it's 24,000 people, so there's a lot of people. But is there kind of a dominant demographic who, who sta has stand in the South Stand? Is it sort of mainly younger Dortmund fans? Uh, no, I would say it's a pretty, much, pretty much a cross-section of the support. Um, okay. It's a huge place. Uh, and it's a terrace, obviously, so you don't have to see. But of course, everybody has, you know, the place where he always is, yeah, where yeah. he or she always is. So uh, I always stand in the same place. <laughs> I always have the same people around me. So uh, you stand there regularly, do you? You're in there, right? Oh, yeah, the, uh, yeah I still have place. a season ticket. Well, yeah, not as much as they used because, well, because of the job and because of being in Berlin now. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, I, have to, I often have to work on weekends. Yeah. Uh, which includes going to football games, yeah. uh, you know, but it's not, it's not always Dortmund. So anyway, um, so what I was going to say is th at the same time, um, I mean, the, the tickets are quite cheap, of course, because it, it, it's, it's, it's a terrace, but still it's, it's, they're kind of hard to get because most people would like to stand, even, you know, the, the people who buy tickets for the seats, for the seated areas, expensive tickets, and, and then try to sneak onto the terrace. Really? So, uh, yeah, um, there have been one or two games past the first cup games when there, there was some sort of problem with the tickets. Uh, and I couldn't just, I just couldn't get to my usual place. So I was somewhere else. And, and that, that was the first time I noticed how many young people there were. I mean, I was, there, I think it was a cup game against Bremen standing next to a group of boys and girls. I think they were, I don't know, maybe 14 or 15. And, you know, they were clearly, of course, they were there to see the game, but they, they were also there for the experience. I mean, they were, they were sharing a beer, you know, uh, and they might have smoked. Uh, so Can you it, smoke there? Are you legally allowed to, to smoke on the... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In stadiums generally, or is that sort of unique to Dortmund? No, no. No, okay. no. It's, it's, um, I mean, sometimes you will notice that they're not only smoking cigarettes, if you know what I mean. Anyway, I do. yeah, yeah. I do, yeah. <laughs> What I realized was that um, there was a lot of talk about uh, of English football losing one or two generations of supporters, mm. you know, just because the tickets are so expensive that people no longer have the stadium experience. You know, they just watch a club from the pubs, in the pubs or whatever. And uh, I don't know. It, 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 I was touched, if you, if you know what I mean, by, by, by the realization that um, there was this group of, 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 you know, boys and girls and they had the opportunity to, you know, it was a bit of an adventure for them, you know, being among themselves, well, being amongst adults and yet not supervised, you know, yeah. they, were, they were cleaning their parents around. And so they were, well, they were allowed to do things like that, you know, like smoke and drink beer and, and hear adults curse and cuss and things like that. It was, it must have been very exciting. Yeah, I think in England, obviously, ticket pricing is, de is definitely a major issue and is absolutely pricing certain especially younger fans out of football so um it's good to hear that isn't the case in germany and that idea of sort of kids being able to stand together as a group that does feel sort of very old school and something that used to happen in england and isn't happening that often 
but is being maintained in Germany and as a part of the, the culture. So that's great. That's very, very encouraging to hear, certainly from a sort of German fan culture point of view. Anyway, let's go back then to the very start. Um, obvious question. Why is Uli Hesse a Borussia Dortmund fan? First, I was born in Dortmund. However, I didn't grow up in Dortmund. Um, I grew up a couple of miles um, away in, 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 a, in a smaller town called Una. And it was sort of um, Dortmund or Schalke territory. So where I grew up, it was either Dortmund or Schalke. And what we had a lot at that time was not, as you would think, Bayern Munich, but Borussia Mönchengladbach. Uh, you know, they were the huge team in the 1970s. Mm. And they were sort of like, the way Dortmund and Bayern are now fighting for the title, it was Gladbach and Bayern in the 70s. And everybody hated Gladbach. Uh, sorry, everybody hated Bayern. So Gladbach was sort of the cool team. Oh, okay. Um, the cool team to support. So I, I could have, you know, uh, I could have become a Schalke. I'm trying to think about it, but I could have <laughs> become a Schalke supporter or a Gladbach supporter. But there was never really any question about this because of my brother. So he actually grew up in Dortmund. So, and he would tell me stories of actually, well, well, well those, those stories that, which always sound like fairy tales from another, I don't know, from another dimension. But he would tell me about, you know, he would go, he would go to, to the games uh, in the 60s, just to just walk over to the ground and meet players and, and talk to them and, and, and get their autographs before the game and things like that. He was also... Um, he was also a member of, of the first Dortmund fan club. Oh, okay. And he, would, and he would travel to away games. It was often that, that I would ask my mum, you know, where's Klaus, where's my brother? And she, and she would always say things like, he's traveling with Dortmund. And that, that sounded fantastic, you know? I had no <laughs> idea what it, mean, what it meant. Yeah. I thought, when I grow up, I want to travel with Dortmund, <laughs> whatever that means. Many, many years later, r- roughly 10 years ago, I did an oral history book about the club's fans. Um, this is a German book, you know, this is not, 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 not Building Yellow Wall, which you mentioned, it, it's, it's a German book. Mm. And it, it's an oral history book. So we collected just um, recollections and, and, you know, memories from, from fans from the 50s, no, from the 40s, actually, to now. Uh, I did this book in a way to honor my brother because, um, um, I don't know, we might be talking about this, but Dortmund were a big club in the 50s. And they were a big club in the 60s, the first German club to win a European trophy when they beat Liverpool in 66 to win the Cup Winners' Cup. But then along, along with the entire region, they sort of fell by the wayside. You know, there was, um, there was, um, there was a steel and a coal crisis in the west of Germany and the club didn't have much money and they were relegated. And in the early 70s, um, not, not that many people went to the games and even fewer travelled with the team. Um, but my brother was one of them. So I've got those old, you know, um, I've got those old photos of my brother, you know, with a huge scarf and, and yeah. a giant flag. Um, Travelling to grounds in the second division with Dortmund. Um, so, so, yeah, he did that. So there was never any doubt, uh, you know, which club I would support. Yeah. Well, that actually takes us on to was the next thing I'll ask you, and it'll be intriguing to see if this is indeed the case. So you're... I, when, when guests come on this podcast, I ask them to um, tell me about their first game that they that they attended as as a fan of their club. And your and your first game was um, uh, it took place on 29th of January 1977 against uh, Karlsruhe. Uh, now was it so? Was it a Bundesliga fixture at uh, yeah. the Westfalen Stadion? And I'm curious. Then was that with your brother? Was it your brother who took you to your first game? 
uh, no, that's the um, no. The funny thing is, uh, he didn't. Okay. It, was, it was sort of an, an early. It was an early birthday present for me. I was um, I was born in '66, so it was, it was, this was shortly before my 11th birthday. Okay. So I was a 10 year old. Yeah. My brother, as I said, is 12 years older than I am, and he was, you know, he was just a fanatical Dortmund supporter. And I just think I've never asked him, but I think he would have hated. To take a ten-year-old to a <laughs> yeah, game probably with actually, yeah. You know? I mean, he would have been in his twenties then, wouldn't he? Yeah. As well, so it's quite yeah, a big was, gap. Was, yeah. I just, I just think he, <laughs> I just think my parents asked him, and he said, "No way, <laughs> no way." Yeah. Uh, so I went with my sister. Okay. And and the the um the great thing about my, the funny thing about my first game is, um, my sister was very concerned, and she was not concerned about things like safety or whatever. Uh, she was concerned that I would like the game, that it would be, you know, that would, I, I'd been waiting to go to a game for a long time. Like I said, I didn't grow up in Dortmund, so it was mm. not easy for me to get to the ground as a, as a 10-year-old. Um, she was a bit concerned that it wouldn't be what I expected it to be. Okay. So when we walked to the ground, she kept telling me that live football was not like football on television. You know, she kept saying things like, you know, on television, you only see the highlights, you know. You only see the opportunity, the scoring opportunities. And she kept saying that games often finish nil-nil. You know? There's nothing happening. She's really putting a downer on this experience. Yeah. <laughs> She's really so, trying to lower your expectations. Was she quite so, a big Dortmund fan as well, your sister? Yeah, she was. Yeah, she was a Dortmund fan too. Yeah. So, um, so we went to the south stand and okay. we stood behind, like I said, I stood behind one of those crush barriers, which I yeah. mentioned. Uh, because I was only 10 years old and I was standing on a, uh, on a small box, you know, to see the ground. And as I stood there, I was just absolutely convinced it would be a nil-nil draw. <laughs> and it finished 7-2. Oh, my God. That's amazing. That was the goal every 10 minutes. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. 7-2 to Dortmund, I presume. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it yeah. Was, um, oh, wow. I just re- very recently I saw... I saw um, some footage from the game because the club a couple of years ago, they released a DVD box um, with, with, um, with big games, famous games. And it, it was, I mean, it was, at the time, it was totally normal to me. But when you look at, at the footage now, you think, God, they played football on that yeah, you know, that, that's not a pitch. There's, I mean, I mean that's, in the winter, that's in the winter as well. Exactly. So the pitch yeah, must it was really January. Bad. Yeah, late January. Just, yeah. You know, it was just a mud bath. Yeah. And, and it was amazing. But, but they played football in these conditions. And it, was, it was normal back then. I mean, that's incredible. So, I mean, what, what was your sister's reaction like during the game? I presume she's never seen a 7 2 either. Was she <laughs> kind of stunned? Was she, I mean, how did she I, take I mean, it? We, she, wasn't, um, she wasn't a match going fan. Okay. It, I, I've never asked her. It might have been her first game. Well, I have no idea. That's that's an incredible. That's just an incredible uh, turn of events. I think that your sister's taking this game and trying to lower your expectations <laughs> as much as possible. I mean, I presume you've never seen a seven-two since. I mean, that's that's got to be the highest scoring game you've ever been to. Um, Nine goals. No, no, said, no. One every ten minutes. Have you been seeing more? Um, I've, I was at the. Um, well, Dortmund were involved in a couple of famous high-scoring games in Bundesliga history, I, re- I regret to say. I mean, well, let's get this over with. I, re- I very vividly remember that I was, do you say bedridden? I, w- I was ill. I was bedridden Yeah, bedridden, yeah, yeah on, if you're on, sick. On the, yeah. F- on the final day of the Bundesliga season in um, 78. Um, so my friends were outside playing football. 
And I said, well, I can't leave the house, you know. I don't, I don't know what the problem was. Anyway, I was better in. Uh, so I told him, listen, I'll, I'll listen to, um, to the radio coverage of the minor, final Bundesliga match day. Yeah. And I'll just post the results, you know. <laughs> Whenever there's a goal, I, I put a piece of paper in, into the window yeah, so yeah. you can look at, at um, you know, while you're playing, you can actually look at, you know, how the Bundesliga... So you give them sort of early, early days live score updates. You're yeah, like the, exactly. in, the internet in the 70s. <laughs> as it happened. It, was, it wasn't exactly as it happened. But, you know, yeah. uh, and that was the day Dortmund lost 12 nil oh, uh, away at Borussia Mönchengladbach. And I, I think I stopped, stopped <laughs> posting the results or the scores when it was 6 nil or 7 nil or whatever. Uh, oh, my God. What, so, what so a day Dortmund to be doing were, updates, yeah. So Dortmund were, I regret to say, at the receiving end of the... Um, um, of the biggest win in Bundesliga history. We were also, the, I, I was at the ground um, a couple of years later when we played um, Amina Bielefeld. And on that day, Dortmund set a record of their own. Incredibly, it was 1-1 at half time, And the game finished 11-1. <laughs> Blimey. Wow. So it was, uh, it was one of the highest scoring games in Bundesliga history. It was also the highest scoring half in Bundesliga history because no team before or after scored 10 goals in one half. Years and years later, when I became, well, a professional football writer or interested in football history, um, I learned that the record for goals in a Bundesliga match uh, stands at six, uh, scored by Dieter Müller, uh, and that nobody had ever scored six goals again. And I remember that game against Bielefeld, and I realized that my favorite player, Manfred Burgsmüller, uh, scored five goals on that day. And the, the last goal was a penalty. Uh, and, and it was uh, taken by our right back, Lothar Huber. So you've got, so, so you just look at the result, uh, you know, at the score sheet, um, and you see Buxmüller, 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 Buxmüller. And then there's a penalty in the last minute, <laughs> and Lothar Huber makes it 11 1. And I always wondered. Why didn't take? Why didn't Bukusmila take the penalty? Yeah, was he the regular penalty taker at the time? Who no, won? not really. But I mean, you've scored five goals. Yeah, and you could have had six entire Bundesliga records. So why didn't you take it? I mean, you, um, when we set up this meeting, you asked me for my all-time yes eleven, and, and I we... try to be as diverse as possible. But I think I'm, I certainly mentioned. Uh, funnily enough, I mentioned certainly mentioned Bukusmila because he was my favorite player then. He was actually every Dortmund fan's favorite player. Um, I, al- I think I also mentioned Lothar Huber, the right back, uh, who's now the groundsman. Oh, really? <laughs> Funny enough. Um, and I also mentioned Radu Kanu, who was a Romanian, our Romanian playmaker. You did? Um, yeah, they're all in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah just checked. So um, I always assumed that Radu Kanu, the Romanian, that he went out to Buxmuller and said, you should take the penalty. But Buxmuller declined and Huber took the penalty. Now, years and years and years later, I was working in Dortmund for a, for a company that did players' websites. And one day, Manfred Buxmüller walked in, in, into our offices. And, and um, well, I, he was my big hero, you know. Well, I mean, the funny thing is at the time we were doing, you know, we were having regular business dealings with, you know, with Michael Ballack, with Oliver Kahn, with Bastian Schweinsteiger, with Lucas Podolski, you know, with all mm. those players. And to, to me, they were just customers, you know. Yeah. Uh, they were just, yeah. Of course, every intern we ever had, you know, just, just swooned and, and, and you know, yeah. uh, and, and couldn't believe that all these players would, well, 
it wasn't as if they're walking through the office all day long, but you know, they would often drop by and um, they would always look at them and, and think, you know, oh, my God, Michael Pollack. And I would just say, yeah. it's just a football. Isn't it? <laughs> but then one day this, well, this old man, I mean, he looked like an old man and he had a walking stick, you know, because um, from his long days playing football, you know, his, his hips or his knees were, mm. were giving him problems. And for books, I walked in and I, I would just, you know, I couldn't speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I couldn't speak for a while. <laughs> when, when I regained my, my capacity for speech, I asked him about the game. He, it, was, it wasn't a big deal to him, you know. At the time, I mean, these days you've got, these days all the players know exactly what mm. they're doing, you know. They, the, um, there was the famous game between Dortmund and Real Madrid when Lewandowski scored four goals. And you can see him, um, and he celebrated in front of the south stand, and he held up you know, four fingers, saying, you know, it wasn't, we're beating Real Madrid, you know, or we're in the Champions League final. He was saying, I've just scored four goals against Real. So, but back yeah. then, players, I think, either they don't, didn't care, or maybe they just weren't aware of it. So yeah. Buxmiller just said, well, yeah, Raducanu came up to him and, and said he should take the penalty. But he said, well, Lothar Huber is our penalty taker. Mm. So he's going to take the penalty. That's all. Yeah. There's no big mystery. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that was an, 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 a higher scoring game. There you go. Everyone. Yeah. Well, we should say, uh, we will come on to your all-time 11 later. Yeah, as, as anyone who listens to this podcast will know that I always get my guests or ask my guests to pick an all-time 11 based on the best players they've seen during their time supporting their club, the best players for that club. And, and Uli's been very kind to pick an all-time Dortmund 11. So we'll come on to that later. Um, before we do that, I just want to go back to so your early days following Dortmund then. So the 76-77 season was your first, the first season in which you went to see him play live. They finished eighth that season. And then there were a lot of similar finishes for the remainder of the 70s and throughout the 80s. Uh, there were some very notable lows and highs, voided relegation in 86. And then you touched on this earlier. They won the German Cup uh, in 89, beating Werder Bremen 4-1 at the Olympic Stadium in Berlin. Uh, Horst Koppel was the manager. I think that's who you, you said you, who yeah, you, yeah, who you spoke exactly. to recently. Um, so these are obviously your formative years watching Dortmund. You're a teenager. It's obviously, for most football fans, the most sort of exciting period following the club. Um, what, what was that like? And also, obviously, you had a very unique experience because you're growing up in a, in a divided country. Obviously, the Germany at that time is still divided between East and West. So putting that all together, how, how was that experience? Um, you said, obviously, going to Berlin for the 89 final meant obviously crossing the border. So just curious how that entire experience was for you as, as, a, as a young man watching Dortmund in, those, in the 70s and 80s. Oh, well, actually, that 89 Cup final was um, the first and the only time that I was ever in, in well, I was only traveling through, but it, that I was ever in, in, in East Germany because, well, rather unusual, well, I'm not sure if it's unusual, but I would think so. Yes, maybe for, for, for the German family, we didn't have any relatives in the East. I mean, there, there, I had lots of friends who, you know, they had an uncle or, a, you know, an aunt or whatever living in East Germany, and they would sometimes go there or send parcels over to East Germany. But we never had that. So that was my only, um, just a couple of months before the wall came down, actually. I think it was, it was less than half a year before the wall came down. But there, there, was, there were no signs whatsoever, you know, at the time of never dreamed of the wall coming down. Mm. So 
Um, so that would have been that would have been the last major game, domestic game, I guess, in Germany played before the wall came down. That eighty nine German Cup final between Dortmund and, and Bremen, I guess, would that would that be right? There wouldn't have been probably was, major game. Yeah, it's major yeah. game because it was yeah, it was November eighty nine. Funnily enough, Dortmund um, Dortmund played Chemnitz in the UEFA Cup. What used to be Karl Marxstadt, um, they played Chemnitz, an East German team, um, on the eve of reunification. Uh, one of the one of the fans I talked to about um, for this oral history book, he said um, that he wanted his father to take him to a European game, you know, with Dortmund. I want to see Dortmund play, you know, in, in a foreign country. Mm. Uh, and this fan said, "Well." So I did him the favor and took him to this game in Chemnitz. Um, yeah, because technically a foreign country. It was technically yeah. a foreign country until yeah. midnight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, is that how it felt? So going back to the 89 final, for instance, the 89 German Cup final against Bremen, did it feel like for you as, as, a, as a young man at that time, did it feel like going to a foreign country, watching Dortmund in a foreign nation, even though it's Berlin, where you are now, of course? <clears throat> Yeah, well, well, the final was in West Berlin, of course. But to get to West Berlin, you had to travel through, through, um, through East Germany. And I, can, I remember that before the game, we were briefed, you know, what to do and what not to do while traveling through East Germany. So there were all these, you know, they said, uh, you shouldn't have a, a scarves outside of the windows. And, uh, you, you know, you, you, you must never drive too fast. Um, please never leave those those transit highways, you know. So, and every so every everybody traveled very very orderly, you know. Mm. It was driving very very slowly, trying to stick to the rules, everything. And on the way on the way back, nobody cared anymore. <laughs> <laughs> was it just full on celebrations on the way yeah, back? Yeah, it was yeah. just. Uh, I mean, there were there were forty thousand Dortmund supporters at, at the ground. Was that quite intimidating then to en- to enter to enter? You know, uh, sort of, diff- you know, that, as you had no relatives, you had no experiences there. Once you got there, did it feel just quite normal? You're just watching Dortmund play. I mean, but also it's a cup final as well, I guess. So that's quite unique because I said probably the first you've experienced as a, as a fan as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a very, very surreal day yeah. from, you know, from, from getting up very early because, um, because we had to go to Berlin mm. and we had no idea how long it would take because we had to cross the border. Yeah. And there were, there were all these stories about, you know, people having to wait for hours at the border because they would search your car or whatever. Um, in the end, it wasn't quite that dramatic. I mean, probably because um, those East German border guards, you know, they knew there would be thousands and thousands mm. of cars coming, yeah. you know. Um, I mean, I remember that we went, we went to the border and we had to hand our passports and the guy would just... It, it was quite intimidating in a way because yeah, you know, it was just like it was sometimes see it in the movies because he would just, just look at the passport and then stare at you for minutes on end. And it was only later that I was told that they're staring at you for so long because they're checking your car. You know, this, this guy is just, you know, sort of gaining oh. time. Oh, okay. Oh, that's um, interesting. Okay. <clears throat> So after what, what felt like hours for us, he yeah. finally said, are you going to the football? Now, yeah. the entire car was full of scarves and flags <laughs> and everything. And we had also been told, don't, don't make any jokes, you know? Yeah. Don't get funny with those guys yeah. because they're going to pull you over and you know, you're going to spend the rest of the day there. Yeah. 
So we said, uh, yes. And then he, said, he didn't say anything for another minute or so. And then he said, well, good luck. Uh, yeah. And that was it. And then we drove off. And, and like I said, going back, it was just, you know, nobody really cared anymore. I don't, actually, I don't remember much about going back because we weren't quite sure of whether we should go back directly after the game or stay in Berlin. Uh, because, you know, it was my first time in Berlin, in, in what was then West Berlin. And, of course, it would have been a good occasion, you know, to check out the city and everything. But then we did the unthinkable, well, what, what, what was for me unthinkable, and won the game. Yeah. So that meant there would be a big party on the next day in Dortmund, and we wouldn't want to miss that. So we drove back through the night, back to Dortmund, and then on the next day went and t- attended the victory party in, in, in Dortmund. Excellent. Fantastic. Really good. Uh, great stuff. And, and, that, and that win sort of kick-started in a golden period, for, or a golden decade, I should say, for Dortmund. And it's a decade I... Uh, as someone who grew up watching football in the 90s, this was when I sort of got introduced to Borussia Dortmund as a club. And 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 f- so almost like sort of you, you you mentioned them earlier, almost a generation of Dortmund fans. My sort of take on Dortmund growing up was they are just a very successful club. And that is because of what happened in the 90s. So to kind of summarise, it happens, it's kind of kick-started by Otmar Hitzfeld becoming the manager in July 91. He takes over from Koppel. Um you know, UEFA Cup runners up in 1993. You then win back to back Bundesliga titles in 1995 and 1996. And then, what I presume remains the greatest moment in Dortmund's history, you beat Juventus 3 1 in the uh, 1997 Champions League final in Munich. Two goals from Karl Heinz Riedler and one from Lars Ricken against the Juventus side. That were the holders, which should be remembered at that time. And they had players like Peruzzi, Didier Deschamps, Zidane, Christian Vieri, and Alexandro Del Piero. Del Piero actually got. Juventus's goal. Um, how how amazing was that period? Why was it so amazing? Were you at the 1997 Champions League final? Uh, how did you celebrate it? And is it indeed oh, the greatest moment in Dortmund's history? A lot of questions there for you, Lee. Yeah. So pick, pick them as you wish. Okay. First, there were a couple of key events, indeed, that sort of made the 90s possible. Yeah. Uh, one was indeed that we signed Ottmar Hitzfeld. Um, it was, you mentioned Horst Köppel. Um, we won the cup with him and he just had one of those seasons where um, Dortmund started well. We thought we might get into the UEFA cup. And then with the, after the winter break, the roof fell in and the team just stopped winning. It was just one of those things. I mean, um, sometimes you have no explanation football. They just mm. stopped winning <laughs> full stop. Um, but the, it was they weren't really in danger of getting relegated because they'd been so good in the first half of the season. Everybody loved Köppel to bits, but it, there was a feeling that something had something had to be done here. So it, so suddenly Köppel announced that he would not that he would step down at the end of the season, and you know, um, so we needed another coach, and uh, we got somebody nobody had ever heard of. Most people assumed he was Swiss because he'd worked in Switzerland for a long time. And that, that was turned out to be Otmar Hitzfeld. So yeah. that, was, that was just a key, a key event. Uh, another crucial thing was that we signed Stefan Chapuzat. Coincidentally, when Hitzfeld came in, we signed him and he became, you know, a goal-scoring star of the 1990s. And probably, in, in a way, the third key event was one of the lowlights of my career as a Dortmund fan. Because on the last day of the... Um, 91-92 season, we, we, had, we actually had a chance of winning the league. Uh, we were playing away in Duisburg. And it was a long shot because um, um, 
Frankfurt went into the last day um, as, as league leaders and, and Stuttgart had a better goal difference than we had. Um, but we had a chance, you know. Um, so we traveled to Duisburg in large numbers. Um, we basically took over the ground. If, if you see pictures today, I mean, three-fourths of the ground were, you know, were, were black and yellow. And I had a radio. Uh, I always used to take a radio with me to football games, you know, to listen to the other results. Yeah. Uh, so I had a radio with me. And um, Shapizar scored, and we were leading. Uh, it was close, but we were leading. And Frankfurt were suddenly losing, and Stuttgart were not winning. So halfway through the second half, it looked like we would win the league. You know, for the first time in, uh, let me do some math here, in, 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 in 30 years. And everybody, everybody, you know, all the flags came up. Everybody started waving their flags and singing songs. And then four minutes from time, the singing stopped and all the flags came down. It, it probably wasn't that dramatic, but I remember it as, as if, you know, at the entire block turned around and looked at me and said, what happened? And I was the one who had to say, Stuttgart scored yeah. four minutes from time. Yeah. And I've never taken a, a radio with me again <laughs> to a football game. <laughs> so Dortmund finished second. Yeah. That was a blessing in disguise um, because that was, it, was, it was kind of the beginning of the 90s football boom. Private television had been legalized in Germany and was, was getting uh, broadcasting rights. And there was a lot of television money available. And for that one season, they had a system where they put all the money into a pot and then for every round, it would be distributed among the German clubs. And miraculously, everybody dropped out of Europe that season, including Stuttgart. You, you may remember that this was the Stuttgart team that then had to play the Champions League qualifiers against Leeds United. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuttgart yeah. brought on a fourth foreigner at Elland Road and should have forfeited the game. I mean, they should have been... Well, yeah. well, well, in their infinite wisdom, UEFA decided that it would be a, a playoff at a neutral ground, which, which um, Stuttgart then lost against Leeds United. Mm. So Stuttgart were out, of, they were out of Europe before it even started. Yeah. And everybody else got eliminated. And I think from the quarterfinals on, all the money went to Dortmund, you know, because they, 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 as, as you just said, we reached the UEFA Cup finals. So there was a whole lot of money. And suddenly... Dortmund were, you know, swimming in money. They invested that by buying players. Uh, so there's no other word for it. We, well, we bought a great team, bringing, bringing back all those players from Italy. Uh, you know, all those German players who had left for Italy because mm. the wages were higher, there was more money in Italy. And we, we kind of brought them all back. You know, like Stefan Reuter and Andreas Müller, Matthias Sammer. You know, they were all signed from Italy, Karl-Heinz Riedler. So this was sort of the key, the third key event, mm. and that taken together, that sort of kickstarted Dortmund's um, tremendous decade. You, you mentioned the Juventus team, right? What a fantastic team that was! Incredible side, yeah, absolutely <clears throat> incredible. Yeah, Michael Henke, who was then, who was the, um, uh, who was the assistant coach, who he always said, and I think he, I think they stole that line from. Um, they told the players. And I think they stole that line from the Miracle on Ice team. I don't, I don't know if, you, if you're aware of the, if, you, if you're familiar with ice hockey. Not at all. I've got to be honest, zero interest in ice hockey. In 1980, 
the um, the USA Olympics team. They won the gold medal okay. by winning the deciding game against against Russia, against the Soviet Union, who were unbeatable. Before the game, uh, they told the players, if we play these guys 10 times, we're going to lose nine times. But this is the 10th day. That's kind of line they... they Hitzfeld and, and Henke told the players oh, okay. for the 1970 yeah. uh, Champions League um, because they were they were really um, I mean if you look at the lineup you know, um, they, were, they were huge favorites Juventus I mean we had guys like Paul Lambert you know but was yeah, interesting yeah. eleven in, in the Champions League final a, a couple of months before the final I actually talked to Paul Lambert I did an interview with him back then back then you just went to the training ground. And as the players came off the pitch after the training, you just talked to them and said, um, Mr. Lambert, could we do an interview? And, and, and he said, yeah, I'll be, I'll be right back. You know, give me, give me half an hour to get you know, yeah, showered yeah. and dressed. And he came back and he had a Dortmund shirt tucked under his arm. And just by way of making conversation, you know, I said, oh, is this, um, uh, is this um, uh, for your son? You know, a souvenir or whatever. And he said, no, it's for me. And he explained that he was collecting stuff um, to remind him because he knew that could be over any minute. You know, because he knew he, would, he had done a fantastic break and he was at, at a major club. It was really, really, he was living his dream. And a couple of months later, he's in the Champions League final. I mean, you, you've just said that for you, Dortmund always, because of the 90s, they're a big club and they, they're a club that challenges for, for silverware. I went to the Champions League final with three sons of our neighbors. I actually only got the ticket because they queued for hours and hours through the night. But they were too young to drive. So they needed someone to get them to the ground. <clears throat> and on the next day, they knocked on our door and said, would you, would you come to Munich with us and drive us? <laughs> so you became um, a designated driver. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we went home after the game. And they were sitting in the car, um, and they, they, I vividly remember, they each had a can of beer in their hand, and they were, they were just about to fall asleep. It's, it's been a long day. Mm. And I said, listen, you guys are 17, 16 and 17, and you've just won the Champions League. What are you going to do with the rest of your lives? And one of them said, oh, we're going to go to Tokyo and win the World Club Cup. And that, that, that's, that's what the club did. But sort of there was... That was a mindset, you know. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely remarkable. I mean, I, I said Paul Lambert's just kind of an iconic figure. Obviously, a Scottish midfielder. It was so it was so rare for me as a you know someone in England to see a Scottish player playing for a German club in a European Cup final. I think one of the other figures that really stands out in my mind from from that team. Well, I mean, one was Matteo Sammer, who is just one of the most awesome defenders I've ever seen. I mean, he, I think he was captain that night, wasn't he? he played for Dortmund between '93 and '98. Also managed the club later. Uh, earned 74 international caps, 23 for East Germany, 51 for Germany, part of the Euro 96 winning team as well. Absolutely phenomenal player. But the other one I want to talk about was Lars Ricken because he, he obviously got the, the, the third goal. Dortmund went two up through Riedler. Del Piero got one back for Juventus. And then Ricken came on as a 70-minute substitute and scored just this really iconic goal where he's run from his inside his own half on a sort of counter-attack and then lobbed the ball over Angelo Peruzzi from quite a far distance out. 
and he was like you. He's a he's a Dortmund a local a local lad from Dortmund. I mean, I presume he's a Dortmund fan. I mean, I, you must have got to know Ricken, or his story must be a very and his story must be a very important one to Dortmund fans. You know, a, a local boy who scores a decisive goal, not the winning goal because obviously they were two one up, but just that sort of decisive final goal in their greatest ever triumph. Yeah, it was it was voted. I think it was voted the greatest goal in club history a while back. Of course, Ricken being a Dortmund. Boy, made this extra special. He wasn't the only one, actually. Uh, goalkeeper Stefan Klaus was born in Dortmund. Um, and Captain Michael Sorg, who was nearing the end of his career, he was brought on late into the game as a, it was the gesture, you know, from, from Hitzfeld for, so yeah. that Sorg would be the one to, to pick up the trophy because um, he had been playing for the club since 1981. <laughs> He then later became the business manager. He's going to step down two days from now on Saturday after more than 40 years with the club. After, yeah, this so, game on Saturday so, against uh, Hertha Berlin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's got to be very, a very moving moment. He's, funnily enough, last weekend is also still working for the club. He's the youth coordinator. Oh, okay. And Matthias Sommer, whom you just mentioned, he's also working for the club. It's more in an advisory capacity, but he is still at the club. Yes, there's so many things about that day. Where we went up 2-0 very early uh, with, with Lambert setting up one of the goals uh, in the first half. And then, then um, Juventus brought on Del Piero, uh, who made it 2-1. And you just said Ricken didn't score the winning goal because it was 3-1, but it, it felt like the winning goal because, because we all thought the game would turn. Mm. You know? it was really, there was a lot of pressure from Juventus. They were the favorites after all. And Del Piero didn't just score any old goal. You know, it was, it was a back healer. Yeah. So I think everybody felt that the game is now turning. And that, that was the very moment when Hitzfeld brought on Lars Ricken, who then scored 10 or 15 seconds uh, into, into, into the game. He later said that he had been sitting on the bench pretty much against his will. And it has to be said against the will of the president. But um, Hitzfeld said, no, he start on the bench and I'll bring him on later on. And which was a good thing, not, not just because he scored the goal. It was also because he, he later said that all through the game, he was watching from the bench and noticing that Angelo Peruzzi was positioned quite far in front of his goal. Oh, okay. So he just had this idea in the back of his head. That yeah. If, if I got the chance, I'm going to try to lob him. And, well, of course... <laughs> Just happened 15 seconds into uh, after he came on. Peruzzi stand äh, eigentlich ständig zu weit äh, vorm Tor. Mit dem Gedanken bin ich tatsächlich auch ins Spiel gegangen. Ja, immer nur Peruzzi steht zu weit vorm Tor, Peruzzi steht zu weit vorm Tor. Nur so wie sich die Situation dann entwickelte, so wie Andreas Müller mir nach weiß nicht fünf Sekunden war es, glaube ich, äh, den Ball dann äh, reingespielt hat. Ähm, war es die beste aller Möglichkeiten. Ich glaube, im, im Fernsehen schrien die Kommentatoren dann auch äh, Lupfen. My book, Building the Yellow Wall, actually opens with Lars Ricken because I, I talked to him and what I didn't know was that the promotion relegation playoff in 1986 when we were literally seconds away 
from getting relegated. He, he was at the ground as a nine-year-old, and he was standing behind the goal where we scored, uh, you know, in the final minute. Mm -hmm. So, and, and he told me, of course, well, like everybody else who was there, this was sort of the key moment for, for everybody. And he said, of course, that to think that, that 11, 11 years later, he would be scoring, you know, the winning goal in the Champions League. Yeah. Final. Uh, that, that's really, that, that's one of those football fairy tales. Absolutely. Yeah. And the fact he's still at the club is, is just great as well. And yeah, it's just, it's, it is one of the most iconic goals I've ever seen. I think because it was at a time when I was properly falling in love with football. The 90s are just a very, for me, a very special time. It's huge shock seeing Dortmund beat Juventus and just the nature of the goal is absolutely perfectly placed. Slightly surprising lob because he hit it so early as well. I think Peruzzi was, was especially surprised. And yeah, it's great to hear that actually he'd done his research on that as well from the bench. So The narrative around it is absolutely extraordinary. And yeah, Paul yeah, it's Lambert. Fantastic. We were, sorry, yeah. sorry we, were yeah, yeah. Standing, uh, we were standing at the other end of the ground. Okay. So this was the other goal. Yeah. We were standing directly behind the goal. So we were sort of in, we were almost in, in uh, what's the word here? I don't know, watching Rickens back anyway. Yeah, right and, from behind him, yeah. And the moment he struck the ball, everybody around me went, oh no. <laughs> because because if, if you watch it, You would see he was not it was not a straight lob, you know. Yeah. It was, it was sort of a swerving lob. Yeah, curled over so, and around. Yeah. So yeah. From our vantage point, it looked as if he would yes lob the goalkeeper, but miss the goal. And then at the last moment, the ball turned around. Yeah. And another great thing about it is, is when you watch Peruzzi, when you watch the footage, he never looks back. You know, he just looks up yeah. and sees the ball, and he knows it's Done. too late. You know, he knows yeah. it will be a goal. Yeah, I mean, you said earlier you, you're obviously with the, with the with the young with the young fans you were with. You were the you were the designated driver. They all they all fell asleep. They all took it for granted. I mean, for you, for someone who's been watching Dortmund since the late seventies, I mean, 20 years actually after your first game, isn't it? A little bit over 20 years. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it must yeah. have been yeah. it must have been incredible, mate, for you. For you, Dortmund to be European champions. I mean, you must have had more than a couple of beers, stayed up all night. Well, I had to drive the kids home. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> a actually, problem. <laughs> yeah, actually, we didn't drive home. We drove to Stuttgart. Which is sort of well, it's not halfway between Munich and Dortmund, but it's um. And another thing was that it was also extra sweet because it happened in Munich. Yes, you know, of course. At, at the time, at the time, most people outside of Germany probably thought oh, it's, it's got to be a bit of a home advantage for Dortmund. But number one, Turin is actually closer to Munich than Dortmund, and number two is of course, you know, Bayern had been chasing this trophy for a very very long time, and. Uh, they really had to bite their lips, you know, <laughs> watching from the stands and seeing Dortmund win it. So that was yeah. um, that was that was really sweet. Yeah, can imagine. Was, um, um, so going to fast forward. I was going to talk a little bit about the the, the and uh, the 2000s, and it was, it was quite a difficult time, obviously, the club financially and stuff. But I'm just going to move past that a little bit because because of time. And I was, you know, to kind of quickly summarise, you had obviously huge financial difficulties in the 2000s. But then you stabilize as a decade went on. Uh, a lot of that was down to the arrival of Hans Joachim Watzers as chief executive of the club. And then that led to another glorious era in the club's history. Um, and that is the Jurgen Klopp era. So he arrived as manager from Mainz in, in 2008 after he'd spent seven years there as manager. He led Dortmund to two Bundesliga titles, also the double in 2012, which is the first in the club's history. Took you to another Champions League final in 2013. Unfortunately, you lost that one too by Munich at Wembley 2-1. Uh, 
And he just cultivated an incredible, young, dynamic, thrilling side containing the likes of Mats Hummels, Ilkay Gundogan, Marco Royce, and, and someone you mentioned earlier, Robert Lewandowski as well. And I think the most striking thing about, for me, Klopp's time at Dortmund, and it's because it's something that I'm feeling very much as a Liverpool fan now, is the bond he created with the supporters. Uh, it was so strong that at the, his final game as, as manager came at the end of the 2014-15 season, which had been a, a but, you know, difficult, bad season with Dortmund. There was one stage where you were in relegation trouble. But even at the end of that game, there were fans in tears. Uh, you described it in, in an article you wrote for 442 that the fans and the city were left in mourning when he left in 2015. Um, do, you, do you want to talk about Klopp's impact on, on Dortmund? Um, not just the, the football success, but the emotional impact he had on, on the supporters and the city in general. Gosh, where do, where do we want me to start? Yeah, it's hard, <laughs> isn't it? It's is hard. I mean, I could talk about it endlessly. I absolutely love the guy. I absolutely it's love really, him. There was, a th- I don't know if it was a book or an article where I said that, well, you know, for, for most of us, even Liverpool and Dortmund fans, it, it's not normal to win a league title, you know? We're, we're not Bayern Munich. Yeah. So we don't win it 10 years in a row. So it's always something very special. Then for... Most football fans, it's very, very rare to have a team that everybody loves. You know, not, not just a winning team, but a, a team you just, you know, where, where the most expensive player has cost 4 million euros, uh, and, and which is just more or less full of players you actually like as people, you know, no, no, yeah. not just as footballers. Then it's also very, very rare for, for any football fan to have a manager you really like. Uh, I mean, it's, um, but to have it all at the same time, that's, I don't know, that's, that's a miracle, really. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of people would have forgotten that Klopp was not brought in to win things. Uh, that was just, you know, just nobody expected that, really. Um, he was brought in because the club had become really a bit stale. And, um, you know, there was just, um, and there was the football was uninspiring. Um, a succession of coaches was really not what people liked, and, and it was just um, it was just the idea that somebody should be brought in who would you know wake up the club, you know. So at, at the time he had never won anything, you know. So, so, so there was the plan was not for him, you know, to win all these trophies at least not within the few years that it took him. So that was really, it, it's really those two league titles are probably, you know, normally, uh, when, normally when you talk to fans, especially to older fans like me, uh, um, it, it's, they very rarely glorify the mo- most recent past, uh, if you know what I mean. Um, it's, but I think just every Dortmund fan, it's just those two league titles were just in- incredible. So the football was just totally amazing. I mean, we've now become used to, to these things, you know, the, the, this pressing and gig and pressing game. But I remember many, many games during the first, um, during the first year, they, they won, Dortmund won the league. Um, we would just scratch your head and think, why are we dominating these teams? They, I, I don't know what is happening here. We are so much better than everybody else. Why is this happening? Um, it was just totally new. Um, the, the kind of football was totally new. Before that season, there was a pre-season preparation game. Um, and it was, um, it was um, at the Westfalenstadion. It was between Dortmund and Manchester City. And it's a true story. City had bought 
I think, two or three players on the day of the game. There was not enough place on the bench for all the players they had. Uh, that was classic Manchester City, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you just, just mentioned, City. you know, they yeah. just, yeah, no, they just become obscenely rich a couple yeah. of years ago. And they were buying all these players. And, and Dortmund were running rings around them. And the best player on the pitch was a Japanese player called Shinji Kagawa. And he cost 350,000 euros. <laughs> and, and everybody went, what, what's going on? <laughs> How is this even possible? This is a true story. I know it's true because I've just checked it because somebody, um, an old friend of mine, an, a writer from England, he's, he's doing a piece on Klopp. As I said, in 2013, I published a book, an oral history book. You're probably now, by now sick and tired of hearing this. It's fine. It's absolutely <laughs> fine. You keep mentioning it. No problem at all. <laughs> so we, we published this book. It came yeah. out um, before the Champions League final. So it must have been April or whatever. And um, of course, we did promotion for the book. We did interviews and everything. And we did one interview, my friend and I, you know, it was um, two authors. And the final question was, where will Jurgen Klopp be? I think he said five years from now or four, five, probably five or six years from now. And my friend Gregor, he replied, uh, I hope he will still be at Dortmund. I suspect he will be coaching Germany. And I hope he's not coaching Bayern Munich. And I said, uh, Liverpool. I don't, I mean, at that point, he was, you know, um, he was still the toast of the town and there was nobody yeah, yeah. expecting him to leave. Um, but I felt that, I don't know, I just thought that Liverpool would be the kind of club that he would be interested in. Yeah. Because in, I've, I've, I've talked to him three times or four times. And one of those things, he's, he just loves football um, in, in, a, in a way which is, you know, he, um, I first interviewed him in, it was um, shortly before Dortmund won the first league title. And I asked him why he picked Dortmund. You know, why, why did he sign for Dortmund? Because what happened at the time was um, he was coaching Mainz. Um, of course, he had been this cult hero at Mainz. And he had, been, he had gotten relegated with Mainz. And he was trying to win promotion back. Mm. And during that season, he announced that if he would fail to win promotion, he would, you know, make room for somebody else. So everybody knew that if Mainz won't win promotion, Klopp will be available. And there were a number of clubs who were interested in him. I mean, report, there's, there's a story of Bayern Munich phoning him up and Hamburg came very close to signing him. And, and he said, you know, he could have told me all kinds of, there, there are thousands of explanations, you know, for why you pick a certain club. But he said that whenever he came to Dortmund as a Mainz coach, he would stand at the sidelines and not watch the football, but, you know, just watch the stands. Mm. And thinking to himself, God, one of these days, I would really like to coach here, you know, at, you know, at, at this very ground in front of this very stand. I would just like to do this because the atmosphere is so fantastic. And then when he got the offer, so then, you know, he didn't have to think long. Well, that, that story, I think, I think you told it in, in an article I read um, when you talked about Klopp, and it was, it was for 442 magazine again. It was published in October 2015, I think very soon after Klopp had become Liverpool manager. And in it, it was something that, I mean, it's a fantastic article, but one thing that really struck me was when you were talking about his incredible communication skills. I just want to read a, a quote from, from, your, from that article you did for 442, where you say about Klopp, 
He always finds fresh ways of saying something in the dressing room, on the streets, in the press room. He almost never uses a cliche or repeats himself. And as I said, as a Liverpool fan, that really struck a chord with me because, I mean, I absolutely adore Klopp. I mean, I've been spoiled Liverpool for 33 years. I've been very lucky to see some great managers in that time, the likes of Gerard Houllier, Rafa Benitez, Kenny Dalglish when he came back. But he is, Klopp is without a doubt, my favourite Liverpool manager of, of, of my time supporting the club. And it's not, as I said, just because of the football and, and you know, the, the quality of the football and the success he's had winning the Champions League and the Premier League. It's also is because of his communication skills and the way he talks, not just to us as fans, but about us as a club. And I just think he's just, he's just, he is just the, the, the epitome of an inspirational leader. I mean, he speaks always with great compassion on a sort of political level as well as a human level. You saw that very much during the pandemic. And he just speaks with great confidence. I mean, I am a natural pessimist by nature. I'm a very <laughs> grumpy, gloomy man. I always look, my glass is always half empty. But when I listen to Jurgen speak about Liverpool, about life, it just makes me feel more optimistic and confident and just generally happy. I mean, you know, it's been a frustrating time being a Liverpool fan under Klopp because we've got probably the best team any of us have ever seen. Um, a lot of fans, even the older fans who saw great success in the 70s and 80s are saying this team is the best Liverpool team of all time. Many are saying this is the best manager of all time, you know, even more than Bill Shankly or Bob Paisley, Kenny Dalglish. But we're not winning as many trophies as we should because of Man City. But we're just so it's... proud to be Liverpool fans at the moment. We're so happy. And that joy and that pride is all ba- essentially transmitting through, through Jurgen Klopp. I just think he's... You know, when I first asked you to sort of speak about Klopp, you sort of took a deep breath and said, you know, where do we start? And I and I completely empathise with that. He's he's just an incredible man, isn't he? I, I'm feeling quite emotional talking about him as well. What he brings to your football club, he did it for you for Dortmund, he's done it for us Liverpool. It, it's it's kind of it's kind of unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, it's, of course. You um, you mentioned that um, um, that that how he left Dortmund, and it, it was really not a good season. They were actually in danger of getting relegated yeah, yeah. he turned that sort of he turned it around after the winter break but it was really a, a very deep shock you know normally when you get a season like that uh, and then you announce that the coach is stepping down um th- there will be people who say yeah maybe it's better you know yeah. maybe it's for the better well i mean he, he gave this press conference and i was getting i was getting um, text messages during the press conference and people were saying i already missed the guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, yeah it was um when he left, um, I was wondering if if he would be able to do to have the same sort of impact um, abroad, just because of the language, because he really is such a great communicator. But then, you know, in, in 2018, I traveled to Liverpool to talk to him, and I sat in on, on the press conference, and it just took me five minutes to realize it was actually the same as it was in Germany. He opened the door, he sat down, and five minutes later, everybody was laughing, or yeah. uh, you know. Um, so he must be able to do this, even though, of course, he's not a native native yeah. native speaker. We we do have a bit of a club problem in Dortmund now, because every manager who's come in since then yeah. is being compared to Klopp and found wanting. And there is um, there 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 is this theory that we somehow need to win the league just to get rid of the ghost of Jurgen Klopp. You know, <laughs> yeah. And there's this because because. The, I mean, it's been a story ever since Klopp left, you know, just three games into the season. Everybody would say, oh, God, no, no, that's, that's not Klopp football, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we would have never played like that on the Klopp and things like that. And it's, just, it's, it's kind of frustrating. Um, so we, we somehow have to find an ex- we need an exorcism of sorts here. 
I mean, I can totally empathise with that. I mean, you, you talked about Dortmund, the, the, you know, being in mourning after after he left. And I, I, I'm already sensing that it's going to hit Liverpool very, very hard when he goes. Whatever his, however it ends, however, you know, his final season could see us, you know, flirting with relegation. How, whatever the case is, when he announces he goes, I think it's going to hit the fan base and it's going to hit the city very, very hard. I think people who haven't had Jurgen Klopp as manager of their football club don't fully understand the impact he has on you. And there's a lot of fans in England sport teams like Manchester City and Everton and Chelsea and Manchester United who all, you know, who, who all kind of think he's all hype and, you know, think the media love him and he gets far too much of an yeah, easy yeah. ride. And he can be prickly at times and he can say things about referees after games and, and about other teams, which are maybe not great and a bit insulting. But honestly, when when Jurgen Klopp has touched you, he touches you for life. He's a, he's uh, he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal presence and figure. And I think Liverpool will be in mourning when he goes. And I think the next manager who takes over will struggle to live up to his to what he's done at the club, even if the trophy haul at the end of it isn't that great. Because because of Manchester City's presence, Liverpool may not actually win that many trophies under under Klopp. Certainly domestically, they might win obviously the European Cup this season again. But no, he's 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 absolutely staggering. He's absolutely staggering. I love him. Absolutely love him. Um, talking about Manchester City, I just do want to ask you a question about about modern Borussia Dortmund before we wrap up the podcast with the final couple of things. Um, so the week we're recording, Erling Haaland, it was announced, is joining, is joining Manchester City in the summer, scored 85 goals in 88 appearances for Dortmund since joining them from Red Bull, Red Bull Salzburg in 2020. A very depressing signing for me as a Liverpool fan and I think a pretty depressing <laughs> signing for English football because City, as I said, are about to win their fourth Premier League title in five years and with Haaland, they're almost guaranteed for me to win next season's title, probably win the Champions League as well. I'm depressed um, and I think I might be able to, I'm about to get even more depressed when I ask you this question early, just how good is Erling Haaland? Oh, he's awful. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. He's actually had a... a an unexpected dip in form, probably having to do with a couple of injuries or whatever in the last couple of months and, and yeah, months, more than weeks. Um, so which is sort of helping us at Dortmund fans at the moment because, yeah. you know, he set all these incredible goal-scoring records and everything. I still remember his first game um, when, when we were playing away at Augsburg and um, falling behind by a goal and then by a second goal and then people started posting messages on social media, you know, and on Twitter, tweeting things like, uh, oh, being two goals down is okay because Holland will come on and score a hat-trick. And of course, that's what he did. Uh, so even before he came in, there was this hype around him, this, this buzz. And he certainly lived up to that. But the last couple of months have been, well, a bit lukewarm. Also, a lot of people here, I'm not quite sure if, he, if he's really a Manchester City player. Or, yeah. more precisely, or more precisely, a Guardiola player. Yeah, that's been discussed but, here as well. Yeah. You know, that sort of intricate, quick-touch, high-possession football. He's a bit of a yeah. battering ram, isn't he? Sort of, you play the ball over the top, he runs onto it, and that's not how City play, it feels, anyway. Yeah, the football becomes very direct. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> with, uh, with, yeah. Uh, which is, of course, enjoyable. But, um, yeah, um, we, well, as Dortmund fans, we've come a, become a bit resigned to the fact that it has become... Um, out of necessity, it's, it has become sort of a club policy to sign young players and groom them and then sell them with a profit. Yeah. Um, Jaden Sancho it, was another it one, was, wasn't it? Yeah, it was quite yeah. clear. And with Haaland, it was even, it was quite clear from the very beginning that, um, that he would leave sooner rather than later. I mean, we were sort of hoping that 
that, um, he, I mean, he, he was on record at saying that he would love to play for Real Madrid and Real were interested in him. And, you know, with every Karim Benzema goal, <laughs> we were thinking, oh, okay, uh, they're probably going to... Th there was the hope that he would stay for another year during which Benzema would play up front for Real. And then the year after that, uh, he would jump with them. So, yeah, it's... Um, it, well, you hear me. It, 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 it's not the end of the world for Dortmund fans right now. Number one, because of the way he's been playing of late. And number two, because, you know, we knew this all along. Yeah. And he no. was here sort of, you know, to, make, to take the next step. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, with all respect, all due respect to Dortmund, I think when, as soon as he moved to Sal from Salzburg in 2020, I think it was very early 2020, was it January, just before the pandemic struck? That also, sorry, because it's so Jade Now, if Bellingham would leave, that, that would be tough. Yeah. Because he's become really, he's really... He's been really amazing and inspiring for, for such a young player. Yeah. Um, well, he's been linked with Liverpool, and I'm hoping yeah, we do. Yeah. We hope we do sign him because I think we, we probably do need a midfielder in the summer. And he's—I've not seen a lot of him. I've seen bits for England, little bits for Dortmund. He does look absolutely phenomenal. Looks a very, very modern and very sort of Klopp midfielder as well. So, yeah, I do. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's a Klopp player through and through. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Sorry to say, Uli, but I do hope we take him from you in the summer. <laughs> um, Uli, you've been absolutely brilliant. It's been great talking to you. Uh, I've had, I've kept you for quite a while, so I'm going to let you get back to your your life in Berlin very soon. Before I do that, just a couple of final things that I do on this podcast. I'm going to do with you. The first one is we have teased this a couple of times. It's your all-time Borussia Dortmund eleven. So again, to explain, when guests come on this podcast, I ask them to pick an all-time eleven based on the best eleven players they've seen for their club during their time supporting their club. And Uli has picked an all-time Borussia Dortmund eleven. Uh, so I'll go through it and then we can have we can have a little conversation about it. Uh, so it's in a 4-4-2 formation. So the goalkeeper is Stefan Kloss. The back four is Lothar Huber, Matthias Sammer, Mats Hummels and Dede. The midfield four is Shinji Kagawa, Murdo McLeod, Marcel Raducanu and Manfred Bergsmuller. And the attackers are Stefan Schapustat and Fleming Poulsen. Um, so one sort of striking thing for me is there are only three members of the 1997 Champions League winning um, team in that in that side, which is Klos, Sammer and Shapusat. Um I would have thought, given that's probably the most iconic team in, in Dortmund's history, there might have been more players in that team. But I think you did say earlier you wanted to sort of spread it out over your whole period watching watching Dortmund. Was there anyone else from that team who was even close to getting in? Yeah, of course. Team? Well, there, there was one reason. Uh Another one is um, that, um, I mean, you said the best players, but of course, as a fan, you don't pick the best players because, um, because otherwise I probably would have to pick um, someone whom you didn't, you didn't um, mention from the 97 team. And it was not so, um, I mean, outside of Dortmund, is probably not so well-remembered as a member of that team, which is Paolo Sosa. Yeah, no, excellent play. Yeah, brilliant uh, play. He went. To, he played for he, Juventus, didn't he? Either joined you or left you for Juventus. Can't yeah, he came around. from he Juventus. Juventus. Uh, that's it. He yeah. had a, he had a knee injury, and Juventus let him go because they figured he was done. And he only stayed for that one year. But he was one of those players who, oh God, he was incredibly gifted, uh, incredible player. I mean, he was just um, just one of those players where you think that even if even if he hadn't won anything, you know, you would think. God, this this guy was something else. So I just I just picked the players, you know, across generations, and of course, not just because they were great players. Of course, I picked Murdo McLeod because I knew it would be 
on your podcast and I want to travel, you know. <laughs> well, it's, I was going to come on to Murdo McLeod. So uh, for my sins, um, I'd never heard of this guy. And I saw your <laughs> team and I looked at it and I thought, that sounds like a Scottish name. So I started doing my research. And yeah, he was a, so he was a Scotland midfielder who played for Dortmund between 1987 and 1990. I think he joined from, he signed from Celtic, didn't he? He was, so he was basically Paul Lambert before Paul Lambert. Exactly. Yeah, um, exactly. Although, yeah. well, he was probably, um, I'm not sure. I think he was, I think he was, um, um, I think he was a bigger star than Lambert when he came. Yeah, because absolutely. Yeah, he, he was a Celtic yeah. player. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we knew we would be getting a good guy. Uh, he, he was a member of the 89 cup winning team. Yeah. So it's sort of, you know, but there was more like an example for just like Day Day, the left back. He was, Murder McClough was this huge fan favorite. Just everybody loved him. Lambert, on the other hand, Lambert, he, um, as, I, as I said, I talked to him, I interviewed him, and he had, he had been with Motherwell, and Motherwell had played Dortmund in the UEFA Cup a couple of years earlier. So um, before I talked to Lambert, I talked to the Dortmund assistant coach, and I said, I assume you remember Lambert from the Motherwell game. And he said, oh, no, not at all. <laughs> he said, what happened was that uh, we had a lot of injuries, And then an agent phoned us and said, are you aware that there's a midfielder out of a contract in Scotland? He's literally sitting by the phone and waiting for Rangers or Celtic to call and nobody calls him. So you can have him. And, and they said, well, what's his name? And he, they said, he's Paul Lambert from Motherwell. And then they went back to the tapes and had a look. You know, and they said, oh, didn't we play Motherwell a couple of years ago? Yeah. So then they, they invent, they, then he got a trial, you know? They, yeah. Got him over to Dortmund for a trial. Yeah, that, that's when they sort of said, "Well, yeah, no, yeah." Please, so please stick around as a, as a, as a, you know, as a surplus midfielder, as a, as an extra. And yeah. Then he became a starting player. Yeah. Now, so, yeah, I think that all, yeah, all tallies with my sort, um, my knowledge of Paul Lambert's story. I think he's spoken about it before, saying, "Yeah, absolutely, he was a free agent, was waiting to be taken by one of the yeah, two yeah. big Glasgow clubs, and, and nothing was coming his way." And yeah, he didn't really have a profile, I don't think, in Scotland. And then, you know, lo and behold. You know, 1997, he's one of the key members of a Champions League winning side. So it's an absolute phenomenal story. Um, he also had, he also had, sorry, he also had yeah. one of the emotional, most emotional sending offs I've ever seen in Dortmund because um, okay. he left because, um, well, because of his wife, actually. His wife was homesick and um, he asked the club to be let out of his contract. And then after his, after his last game, he circled the, the ground with, um, with a banner saying, thank you, fans. Oh, wow. everybody, kept, everybody kept sitting for I don't know 15 minutes and people were crying it was really it was very very emotional Dortmund fans do like crying when people go don't they Klopp <laughs> Lambert um, no that's a, that's a great story and obviously he went on to have a huge success with Celtic as well under under Martin O'Neill um, that's brilliant yeah no that's absolutely fantastic really. I say I've got to let you go before I do I'm going to ask you the final question I ask on this podcast um, and I'm going to ask it to you now if you could go back in time and change one moment from your time supporting Borussia Dortmund up to now, and it can be absolutely anything. It could be a goal, a match, a transfer, a very specific moment in the game, or a very personal moment. What would you choose? Um, since I've since I've told you the story, so I don't have to go through it all over again, I would probably take that moment in 1992 uh, when I was standing there with the radio <laughs> and have um, Guido Buchwald miss the Leverkusen goal with his header and, and Dortmund win the league. But didn't you say that was a blessing in disguise though, that they yeah, didn't win the league, yeah, but you still won the title? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a very painful moment. <laughs> I mean, the drive home was, you know, going, going from Duisburg to Dortmund, you go through Gelsenkirchen. And there were, there were, you know, Schalke fans, you know, standing on bridges and, you know, and taking the piss, as we say in England. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, was, it must have been horrible. It was painful. I can imagine. That's fair enough. No, that's a great answer. Um, it's been a joy speaking to you. Uli Hesse, thank you very, very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you.